Thank you, Nana, and good morning. Um, it really is a privilege uh, for me to be able to stand here and just talk about this. Um, you know, not just because it's the work and the field that I um, get to be a part of, but I love that uh, Transit Church uh, wants to engage more and understand together, you know, what this problem looks like um, and what is it that we can be doing. So I'm particularly grateful for Pastor Jeff and just his heart uh, just to engage more on this issue. Um, and, you know, and to talk about this, it is difficult. I think uh, Nana had just shared some some really sobering information, right? When you look at these statistics, it's it just seems so big. Sometimes when things so seem so big, the first reaction might be to just to back away because it feels like we're so small. And what's the point or what's possible? What's, what's, what really is possible? What can we possibly do? The thing that um, I've started to understand more and more is you have to lean in to be able to see the hand of God at work. Um, because the glimpse you get of what God is doing from a distance is nothing compared to what you can get when we come close up. And when you come close up to the realities of the, the most broken and painful places, you see God's presence there, and you see his hand there, and you see the beauty of what God is able to do. So this morning, here's the way I thought would be best for us to approach it. Um, I thought, why don't, instead of sort of laying out the panoramic view of the magnitude of this problem, um, let me bring you close up and share just a few stories. Um, one will be a story that I will share about an actual, actual individual uh, case. And another one, I would love for us to look at a story from Scripture, uh, from the book of Genesis. Um, the work that IGM has done has really given us an opportunity to grow across the world. So when we talk about slavery, we are able to look at slavery as it looks like in India, where it is probably the country with the most slaves today. Um, but also slavery in Ghana in the fishing industries where young boys as young as um, eight, nine, ten years old are trapped today and uh, enslaved on boats. And also looking at slavery in, in the Gulf Coast of Thailand, where in the fishing industry, so many people from many different nations together are enslaved and the way the slave traffickers get away with it is trying to park their boats just outside in international waters so that no one country can actually kind of do anything about it and to hide. But there's also problems of sex trafficking. There's also issues we, we work on, which is citizenship rights that are denied. For example, in, in some countries, minority groups are simply not citizens of any country at all. They're not citizens there. They don't belong to anybody. Imagine not having a sense of identity and, and, and citizenship. What that means is that you can do anything to them, and nobody can stop you. And that's a problem that we work on in the, in the Hill Tribe people in, in Thailand. Or another issue that we see when we talk about injustice is widows. Often in many countries, uh, we find that widows, as soon as their husbands die, people will come and try to take their land and kick them off because they're most vulnerable. You'd think that's a time when communities will gather around them. But it's actually the time when, when those that want to take advantage do. Because again, there's no protection of law, there's no hope, there's no one to turn to that they have. There's also issues of children being sexually abused. Um, in many countries, in Latin America and in Africa and Asia, we work on those issues as well. Again, these are just the helpless that have nobody to turn to. 
Um, and then in Kenya, we also work on a, on a difficult issue, which is police abuse of power, where police will throw the poor in jail and try to extort them for money. And if they can't give it, they're just held there and accused of falsely accused of crimes. Um, and so what we see here is that the poor are suffering in this way because they have no one to turn to for help. They have no remedy, no friends in high places, no access to law enforcement, no one to kind of help bail them out. And so this story that I'd like to share with you is about a husband and a wife, um, and their names are Benaya and Rupa. The husband is Benaya, and his wife's name is Rupa. And I'll just share with you their story. This takes place in a city in India called Bangalore. Um, you know, the dichotomy is amazing. Bangalore is the tech capital of India. So it's your, your Silicon Valley in some ways of, of, you know, that we have in the U.S. of India. And yet, at the same time, it's a place where manual labor and these kinds of industries continue to enslave people. And so this is a case where IJM had a hand in helping provide relief and rescue. So let me introduce you to the work by just, and I just wrote it up so I'll actually share the story this way. Because I really do want you to get a closer glimpse of it. <clears throat> Let me take you to Tuesday, November 24th of last year, two days before our Thanksgiving holiday here in the US. Everything that could go wrong did. Benaya and Rupa's plan had fallen apart. Time was running out. As the men got closer, Benaya knew he had to make a decision. Stay or run? Stay or run? Some part of him knew that staying was a noble choice. But every instinct in him screamed, run, run before the men can grab you. So he ran as fast as he could, darting through the traffic, past the government clinic, past the bus junction, past the rows of homes and shops that were lining the main streets in a town called Ramanagra. Remember that name. Benaya wanted to turn around and look back, if only to get one more glimpse at his wife and baby. But he never did. Maybe he didn't look because of fear. Fear is contagious. It doubles within minutes and grows in places where one never expected. Or maybe it was because of shame that he didn't turn around. Benaya wasn't actually sure about anything at the moment, least of all his emotions. He ran for over a mile until he was certain that there was nobody around, that there was nobody still following him until the only thing that was in front of him was a small rocky hill, and just past that, an old abandoned well. But no people. Benaya stopped at the well to drink some water. Fighting back his exhaustion and his tears, Benaya tried to sort out what had happened and decide what he should do. He understood suddenly and keenly that he had to go back. What kind of a husband and father leaves behind his family to let them get recaptured while he runs away? Benaya decided to return, but take a different route. From a distance, Benaya sees Rupa carrying their baby and walking down the road, being dragged by the slave owner's brother and a half dozen other men in the direction of the owner's house. Benaya hid among the trees and watched helplessly until their silhouette became smaller and smaller, until they disappeared completely. Helplessness is a familiar feeling for Benaya. You see, that's what happens when an eight-year-old boy is put into a brick kiln and forced to mold clays for 16 hours a day instead of a classroom where he is taught to read, to understand math or geography, or to think. The measurable damage 
is that Benaiah never learned how to read or write. And consequently, he has very few marketable skills that could get him a job. But if you dive beneath the surface, the damage of a life lived in captivity is far more sinister. Stunted are his abilities to make decisions, to express emotions, even to ask questions. He lacks a sense of self-worth and self-confidence. The things that would have allowed him to navigate life's adversities and manage life's challenges successfully. You see, in his late teens, Benaiah was sold then from this owner to another slave owner running a different brick kiln. By that point, his mother's health has deteriorated, and all he had in his life as family was his mother. Her health deteriorated to the point where she could not work. And so the owner permitted her to return back to her home village. But Benaiah was sold to this new owner. Mercifully and paradoxically, falling sick was somehow Benaiah's mother's ticket to freedom. But her debt, her obligation, was transferred over to Benaiah. And for the first time, Benaiah was separated from his family. And it was now at this new brick kiln that Benaiah met Rupa, the woman that he would eventually marry in a few years. You see, Rupa's family had been working in this brick kiln for as long as she could remember also, because she too was a child of slaves. Benaiah and Rupa's wedding was a non-event. Simply the act of Rupa changing her address from one slave compound inside the brick kiln to another. In India, the interesting thing is that the poor are always celebrating festivals. You see, it's one of the few things that they make it a point to enjoy. Even the poorest villagers mark their wedding days with drums and music and dancing, and sometimes those celebrations can go on for days. But for Benaya and Rupa, there was no marriage ceremony, no exchanging of vows, no rings, no gifts, no festivities of any kind. I guess such expressions of celebration would really seem farcical, wouldn't it? If not outright painful, when your life resembles more of that of a mule than that of a man. One morning, Benaya and Rupa woke up to find that her parents and younger brother had escaped in the middle of the night, suddenly and without a word. They left all their belongings behind. In hindsight, as Benaya thought about this, he wasn't that surprised. You see, recently, his parents, her parents had been locked up repeatedly and beaten up more and more. The owner had just become more and more cruel towards them, and they had probably reached their breaking point. Rupa's heart was broken that her family left without telling her or taking her along, but Benaya guessed her parents' clever plan, if not cruel, which was born out of desperation and hopelessness. You see, the parents realized that the owners would not come looking for them if there was somebody left behind and that they would probably just transfer the family obligations of Benaya and Rupa. It was a difficult decision, I'm sure, for them, but the only thing they could do just to get away, and they left their daughter behind. And that's exactly what they did. The owner would now hold this couple responsible as collateral until the family returned. That was four years ago, and Rupa has never seen her family since. Life continued for Benaya and Rupa as it always did, working 16 hours a day, making a thousand bricks a day with no end in sight. Sometime later, Rupa became pregnant. 
It was a difficult pregnancy for Rupa, and so she tried to decrease her workload. But the owner just threatened her and said, no, you guys need to make a thousand bricks a day. I'm not going to settle for just 600. So out of fear of being, being hurt, Rupa kept working. And one night, Rupa was in excruciating pain. In desperation, Rupa Benaya called the owner for help, but he refused to help or even to let them go to the hospital. Frantically, Benaya ran over to a neighboring brick kiln, found an old, older lady, and, and begged her to come back and help his wife. She stayed with Rupa till the morning. But halfway through the next day, the situation became really bad, and the baby died inside Rupa's womb. In fact, Rupa barely survived the ordeal herself. And then another year later, Rupa became pregnant again. And this time, Benaya would work through the night so that Rupa could rest and protect the baby. He made all thousand bricks all by himself every day. And she carried the baby to full term. They had a little boy. They named him Vijay. Because there was no one that could be there to watch Vijay while they worked, Rupa took her sari, sari is a traditional Indian garment that they wear, tied two ends to two trees nearby and made a makeshift cradle. And Vijay laid in this cradle all day while they made bricks. They couldn't hold him, but at least they could keep their eyes on him. One night, Rupa was making food and she asked Benaya, what are we gonna do? If we stay in this situation, your son will be in the same situation also for the rest of his life. Nobody will be there to help him either. You know, this question really shook Benaya. You see, he had come to terms with the fact that he would probably spend all his life in a brick kiln as a slave, but it hadn't dawned on him until this very moment that his son would live the exact same life as him too. Just like Benaya and Rupa had inherited her parents' debt, his son would inherit theirs, and the slavery virus would be passed on to the next generation. So he asked Rupa, are you just saying this because you're emotional? just from the moment, or do you have some idea? She seemed serious, and that conversation that night was Benaya and Rupa's breaking point. Whatever the risk, whatever it took, they couldn't take this life any longer. Oddly enough, escaping isn't the hard part. You see, a brick kiln doesn't have any walls. They're not really under constant surveillance, but staying escaped is the dilemma, because a slave owner is quite powerful very influential. This particular slave owner is a money lender in his town, a sort of loan shark who has about 60 different men working for him to collect debts. He knows the villages where Benaya and Rupa's families are from, and he can find all of their relatives. Where will they hide? And in a rural India, the poor cannot just move into a random village. You'd think so, but the villagers there just don't allow it. So Benaya and Rupa ran to the only place that they could, the forest. Benaya didn't tell anyone where they were, not even his mother, and for six months they managed to survive. Benaya would cut timber and they would secretly find a way to sell that so they could make some money. He even used the timber to build them a hut. But then the rains came, heavy rains that lasted for many days, and that makeshift hut started to leak so badly, so badly that their baby became seriously ill. They went to a nearby medical person, but the only thing they could, the person could do, they tried, but there was no help. And their baby Vijay's condition just continued to worsen. And the only option they had left, they decided, was to go two hours to a government clinic in the town of Ramanagra. 
The clinic was just down the street from the owner's house, very close to the very brick kiln that they had run away from six months ago. It was a huge risk. They debated this for many, many times, but what else could they do? And that brings us to the beginning of the story I told you. Tuesday, November 24th, two days before our Thanksgiving here in America. Benaya and Rupa thought that they had planned it well. They thought that they could sneak in and out of the clinic without the owner knowing. But unfortunately, one of the owner's thugs actually spotted them. And so he quickly assembled a half dozen men, including the owner's brother. At the last minute, Benaya saw them coming. But there was no place for him and his family to go, to run. Their plan had just fallen apart. Benaya wrestled with what to do, whether to stay or run. Stay or run. He ran. Now, as Benaya hid in the distance behind the trees and watched his wife and baby being recaptured and being dragged back to the owner's house and their silhouette getting smaller and smaller, he was absolutely helpless to do anything at all. And a part of me also wonders, God, are you watching any of this happening? Are you going to do anything to help this little family? Where are you? The only thing that Benaiah did was he found a way to get in touch with his mother and tell her everything that happened so she knew the horrible news. But what could his mother do? A poor old woman in a village who lived a life of a slave. Nothing. Except, for some reason, she decided to pass this information along to a local school teacher in the village. But what could he do? Nothing. Except for some reason, he passed that information along to a social worker of a local organization, a Christian organization called BIRDS. Yes, BIRDS, which stands for Brothers Integrated Rural Development Society. But what could this little social worker do? Or the staff of this organization, BIRDS, do? Their whole thing is to help the poor in trying to find some jobs and life in, in, in these difficult situations. Nothing. Except that... A week earlier, International Justice Mission had conducted a three-day training for all 100 of the BIRD staff, this grassroots NGO organization. In fact, the training was done not just by IJM, but the Bangalore Anti-Human Trafficking Unit, a, a unit that IJM had been working with for the last eight years and had become really close supporters of. And this anti-trafficking unit had become more and more engaged and switched on to the problem of slavery and labor trafficking. So, on the morning of Wednesday, November 25th, the next day, one day after Rupa and her baby were abducted, the IGM office in Bangalore unexpectedly received a call from this social worker from Birds. And he said, sir, we found someone. His wife and baby have been abducted. It looks like what you taught us, this, this labor trafficking, slavery. Could you please intervene? And by the end of the day, IGM staff had interviewed Benaya and found out all the details of what had happened. IGM investigators went out to the town of Ramanagra and conducted surveillance mapping of the owner's house, the brick kiln, and all the different shops that lined those streets. They began to make arrangements on how to conduct a rescue operation, partnering with the heads of the anti-human trafficking units. And the plan was the next day they would be set to go. And the anti-human trafficking unit was more than ready to do this case something that was not true eight years earlier when IGM had started working there. And so on our Thanksgiving Day last year, the Anti-Human Trafficking Unit, along with IGM and Benaya, 
proceeded on a rescue operation. And the officers systematically raided home after home in this area, including the owner's house. They also raided all the small shops that were next to the house, but they didn't find Rupa and the baby. And they mobilized into one brick kiln after the other that surrounded that area that this owner had control over. And then inside one of the brick kilns, Benaya walked in and he shouted with confidence, now where is my wife? And within a short period of time, there they found her and the baby hidden in one of the rooms there. And they were back together again. But this time, back together in accordance with the law as free people, not under the threat of the owner coming after them anymore because the owner was arrested and the owner was put in jail. And I thought to myself, you know what? Maybe God is doing more than just watching. And now Benaya and Rupa are a part of IGM social work program. And for the next two years, our social workers will work with them to transition them to a life of freedom, how to get a job, how to make sure that they understand how to save money, how to have a bank account, how to live life in freedom, how to have government benefits and rights that they're entitled to, how to just learn to be husband and wife. Amazingly, if you've never been free, you actually don't know how to live life and make decisions. And that work will go on until slavery is no more in India. This team in IGM is committed to making sure that they continue the work. I wanted to share that story with you because I think it's important for you just to get a glimpse of what it looks like. You can't kind of apprehend all of it at the same time. But this is reality for many. The hiding, the running, the helplessness, the nobody to turn to. What do you do? And if you try to escape, you're probably going to make your situations worse. And so there are those hard questions. You know, where is God? Are you doing something about it? And you see the sort of the beauty of the way God works. You know, I just wanted to focus not just on trafficking and those things, it's a heavy topic, but, but this idea of where is God, and how does God work, and where are we in God's story. So I wanted us to look at Genesis chapter 37. It's a familiar story that you all know, um, and, and we're going to look at the whole chapter, but I'll try to move through it fairly quickly. And, and the heart of this story is this. This is the chapter where Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, right? And you know that because his brothers were so angry and hated him so much that they found a way to sell him when the chance that they could into slavery. So let's take a look at this story and see if maybe there's another glimpse of where God is in the midst of hard situations and how he works. It goes like this. Jacob, it said, lived in the land of his father, sojourning in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. And Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing flocks with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilah and Zilpah, his father's wife. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. And it says here, as it goes on now, Israel, or that's Jacob, Jacob's name Israel, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was his son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that his fathers loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. So that's the backdrop of this story, right? So this is the story where Jacob, as you know, has these, Jacob has these 12 sons. And it tells us very clearly that Joseph was his favorite. And so what do you define there? All his other brothers hated him. And what does his father do to to demonstrate that Joseph is his favorite? He gives him a special robe that the others don't have. I find this very ironic in some ways, right? Because 
that's, if you actually look at Jacob's own story, right? He wrestled with a father who loved his brother more than him. He experienced the pain of what it is to have favorites among fathers and how horrible that was. And he lived all his life just wanting his father to acknowledge him and to bless him. And he ends up doing the exact same thing. He ends up doing the exact same thing. And let's look at the impact this has on this family and the lives of, of each one of them. Now, he's, he's, he's treating Joseph in a special, different way. What do you think that does to an individual? Well, it makes you feel special. <laughs> but it can also make you a little bit superficial. It can make you spoiled, right? Arrogant, oblivious maybe to how other things and other people sort of interpret these same things, right? He could be walking around in this robe. He has no idea how his brothers might feel about it. Or maybe he doesn't care. Look at the, as the story goes on. Now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gather around it and bowed down to my sheaves. Now, you don't have to be a phenomenal dream interpreter to get a, somewhat of a glimpse of what that probably means. It means that all of you guys are going to bow down to me because that's what he said, right? Not something that his brothers are extremely excited about, right? So his brothers hated him. All right, I'll give Joseph the benefit of the doubt here. Like, you know, you have this dream and it's powerful and it seems to be a message that you're getting and they, so you blurt it out and you share it, right? You just want to share it. You may not be thinking of how somebody might take it or not take it, so you communicate it. But then the story goes on. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Then he, being Joseph, he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. This is the point where I think, you know, okay, now I don't know if you can give Joseph the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> because, look, people aren't liking this kind of dream interpretation. Maybe you have some judgment to keep it to yourself. But that's exactly my point. When you're raised in a way that your father just gives you this sort of blank check and gives you special privileges, you just don't think about those things. You don't care. Or maybe you're just like, you know, I, I am special. You start to buy into those kinds of things, and that begins to affect him. So here you have a young man, Joseph's, growing up in a way that's not making him a good man, you know, uh, in the future. And then his brothers, you know, we find out where his brothers are. That's, that's written all over the story. And his brothers are also becoming what? Becoming angry, angry inside, full of hate, right? And that's the kind of relationship dynamics that that family is having. So here's the, where the story continues on. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers come down to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous because of him. So many times that hatred is really just because you're jealous, right? And they're jealous because they just see the way their father is treating Joseph differently and they want that. But his father kept the saying in his mind. And so then it says, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Keep that in mind also, Shechem. And Israel, Israel is, is Jacob, right? Uh, Jacob said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. And so this is where Joseph is going off now 
to go and see how their brothers are doing. And sometimes I think when you have massive amounts of wealth and lots of flock, you go to places that may be far away, and you're not coming back at the end of the day. You could be gone for days, if not weeks, or longer. So that seems to be the backdrop here. So he said to them, go now. Um, and there's a, a pastor in the Vakas Shechem. So in verse 14, so he said to him, go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So find out how they're doing and bring me word. So he sent him to the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Okay. And when he gets to Shechem, here's what happens. A man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please. Where are they pasturing their flocks? And the man said, they've gone away. For I heard them say, keep, keep in that mind, okay? He just said, I heard them say, it's just some man find, finds Jake, Joseph wandering around, right? Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. And this is where you see the brothers' heart quite a bit. They saw him from afar, and before he came to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will, and we will see what will become of his dream. Now, that's the level of hatred that they have, right? I mean, it's not hatred where you want to punch him or beat him up or take something away, but they want to kill him. They want to see their brother dead. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands and saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. That was Reuben's plan. Let's put him into this pit. Later I'll find a way to rescue him. And he talked his brothers out of killing him. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking upon a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brothers and conceal his blood? So Judah has a different plan. He says, come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and let us not lay our hand upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. That's kind of a... Odd logic, right? We're not going to kill him. We're just going to sell him into slavery because he is our brother after all. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of his pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. And the story goes on. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and where shall I, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe for many robe of many colors and bought it to its fathers and said, this is what we found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured it, he assumes, right? Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And the story ends with the fact that his father sits there in sackcloth and ashes, mourning for days. He was inconsolable. Everybody tries to comfort him. But he says, I will go to my grave mourning you know, for my son. I say this story to just kind of illustrate something interesting, a few interesting things. And one is, you know, God's name is never mentioned at all in this chapter. And so you've got to ask this question, God, where are you? Where are you? Why do you let this happen? 
I'm sure Joseph was screaming that, where are you, God? Why are you letting these things happen? There seems to be no sense of God showing up. I mean, the whole chapter actually doesn't even have the word God in it. And it's easy for us to just sort of look at that and assume, okay, there is no God in this story. But we do know the rest of Genesis, or or many of us might know it well, which is what happens, right? Joseph goes into Egypt, he goes into slavery, finds his way, you know, into Potiphar's house, and then back into prison, and ultimately, he's at the right hand of Pharaoh. For what reason? To make sure that he's in charge of grains, because there's this massive famine coming. Seven years, you know, so 20 years he's in Egypt, and then it says seven years later there's going to be a famine coming. And Joseph is put in charge of, of making sure that everybody has enough to eat and storing, and a plan to make sure they can survive through those years of famine, right? He's put in charge. So the interesting thing is this. Had Joseph not actually ended up in Egypt, probably all of Jacob and his brothers and all those people in the area probably would have died, Right? Had, they probably would have died. And, and when you look at the story, you see this thing, right? Where, and, 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 and Joseph says this very plainly, what you meant for evil, right? God intended for good. And I see the way God's hands work, and I think we should too. He, here's, the, here's the interesting thing. Look at how many unexpected things there was. Joseph goes to Shechem because that's where the brothers were. Okay, he's looking for his brothers. He gets there, no brothers. But he happens to see a man who happens to see Joseph wandering around, right? Happens to, coincidentally, coincidentally. And that man coincidentally just knew, oh, yeah, yeah, I overheard your brother say they're going to go from here to another town called Dotham. Okay, lucky for Joseph that he runs into the only man who know exactly where they are and he tells him that. Right? So he gets to Dothan, and there are his brothers, and they want to kill him, but Reuben is there to make sure that he's protected. But then when the Ishmaelite traders come and he's about to be sold into Egypt, guess what? Reuben just happens to not be there, and the brothers are able to sell him into this situation, into slavery, right? Into, uh, uh, for this money. Again, you see the kind of way life's events happen, and you tend to think, gosh, God, where are you? But we have to be extremely high belief on jinx or coincidence or or fate or those kinds of things not to see how God orchestrates and moves behind the scene. Because what happens to Joseph after 20 years in Egypt? He's not that spoiled brat anymore. Guess what? The experience of life has changed him into a man of good judgment, right? Of good compassion. Look at the way he treats his brothers when they come. And when the brothers come... They're not the same spoiled, you know, angry, jealous guys anymore. Because Joseph does a test on them to find out if they really are the same. And he says, look, bring your younger brother, Benjamin. And he tries to hold Benjamin in in, in prison. And he does a number of tests, right, by hiding a cup of silver in their sack of grain that they get. And what is Joseph's test? Let's see how they choose. What do they do? And this time when Joseph says, I'm going to take your brother, Benjamin, and leave him in jail, guess who it is that says, no, 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 put me instead? Judah the one that was actually says, let's sell him into slavery. They are changed. They are transformed by those experiences. My point is this. God is working in miraculous and powerful ways and invisible ways that we just don't know or see many, many times. But the truth is God is working. God is working in in the story of Scripture with Jacob and Joseph, not just to protect them from famine, but also what? To transform their hearts, to become people that realize the evil and the wickedness. And his plans are long. It's a 20-year plan. 
but he will engage in those plans. And God is working in the life of Benaiah and Rupa, two helpless people living in a forest somewhere, had no idea who to turn to for help, but God had already arranged for a training session to happen and these people to be able to be found in ways that they would never have been on their own been able to figure out. My encouragement and my, 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 my point is this. Today, God is working. God is working to hear the cries of those that are in slavery, these massive numbers, 45 million people, children, young girls trapped in brothels and hard places. But he's also working in in the lives of you and I. You see, God sees the human heart, and what he sees is that the human heart is bent inward often and selfish. And our tendency is to think about ourselves and what we want and what we need. And God is rescuing me, I know most of all, from my own self. I am my own worst enemy. And as he's redeeming me, he is calling me to be a part of redeeming the world. This is the scariest thing that I would leave with you. God has this massive plan to bring his kingdom in. God has this phenomenal plan and big responsibility to rescue all these people that are trapped. And his plan is us. Right? Can you imagine what the disciples felt like when Jesus had this plan of bringing his kingdom and then he lifted up into heaven and he disappeared? He's like, so what's next? You guys are next. They had no blueprint. They had no idea. They didn't have any magic answers or anything like that. He just said, go, and I will be with you. Go to the ends of the earth, and I will be with you. Proclaim the good news, the truth that is there. And so that is the reality. When we open our eyes and look, the hope for Benaiah is you and I. right? The hope of those girls that are trapped in those places is you and I. We are the plan for the the world. But God is not lacking. God is not coming up with a foolish plan. We are more capable, more able, more resourceful, more blessed than we realize. It is important for us as a church to recognize that we can change the world. We have. I look at the fight against British uh, transatlantic slavery in the 1700s, and it was just the heart of Christians saying, this cannot be the, the norm anymore, something must happen. And it took a long time, of course. And those battles continue to be complicated and difficult. But that is what God does. He calls us to say, step out into these things in whatever ways that we can. And the beauty of it is, he redeems us in the process. He changes us into men and women of compassion, of capacity. Right? He uses us to be close to those that are suffering. The truth is, I've stood in government offices and, 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 and handled these cases, and what I recognize is that those people that are in slavery will never stand in this office, in this spot, argue with this government official who doesn't care. But I am, I can, okay. So he allows us to be the voice for the voiceless. He allows you and I to have a vision for what this world is supposed to look like a world without tears, a world without suffering. When Jesus entered in and he spoke and he said, this is who I am, and he introduced himself in Nazareth to his own hometown, he said, I bring to preach good news to the poor, to bring freedom for those that are in prison, right? To help those that are oppressed. His mission is to help those that are suffering. I do believe that as a church is a part of of being that that, that swab that comes alongside, it is the way the world wakes up and realizes that the good news that we have matters. It connects with them, it resonates with them, and they want to hear that. 
Um, I would love to tell you more about IGM and the work. We actually have a table set up outside. It's just an opportunity for you to understand more. Um, there are even job opportunities at IGM. So, you know, whatever talents you have, whether it's accountant and finance or technology or writing or whatever, you know, please look that up. We would love for you to be a partner with us in, 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 this, in this work. But, but at the, along with the same side, it's your prayers that matter. It's just to join us as freedom partners as you support us with your, with your giving as well. So if you want to find out more, Nana will be there at the table in the back along with Brian. Um, and we just love to continue to partner more with this church to do this. Here's the amazing thing. God has actually rescued thousands and thousands of people through IGM, and we never thought that this was possible. We really do see God's hand of justice at work. And I do think that in, in our generation, as the church wakes up and draws into this, that God will use us to make miraculous things to happen. Amen.